Okay, I want to share this morning a message that I shared, I preached here over 10 years ago. So some of you will maybe remember it, but some of you weren't here. So, you know, if you were here, I think you can hear it again. Um, the reason I'm sharing this morning, I'm sharing on um, marriage. It was from a series on family. I don't know if this will be my last message on marriage today. Maybe next Sunday I'll carry on. I'm struck by the kind of position society is in globally at, at the moment when it comes to marriage. And the more I look at uh, people around me, even my own children and the next generation that's growing up, I feel a kind of a concern that people are living without faith and they're allowing the world's views to kind of erode any bit of faith that they did have. And I feel like the, the end result is if you allow the thinking of the world to take over and direct your life, you're going to have a pretty miserable life in the end because the world simply doesn't understand these things properly. And so we're in a kind of a battle where we have to fight for truth and we have to fight for that truth that will ultimately set people free and bless them. And the world is disillusioned because they've turned their back on God and they're trying to make everything according to their own kind of best light, which isn't much light at all. So as I speak about marriage, I'm actually wanting to speak in such a way that we restore a, a high view of marriage and that we gain faith for the institution, whether or not you come from a context where you've seen a dismal marriage or a broken marriage. None of that puts aside the fact that God has created something that He intends for good and for glory. So let's pray and then we will look at the Word of God and I'll share these thoughts. Heavenly Father, as we spend some time around your word this morning, I ask that you would impart faith and hope and love into hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The text I'm going on is only half a verse. It's Hebrews 13 verse 4. In Hebrews 13 verse 4, the verse begins, Marriage should be honored by all. Marriage should be honored by all. That statement, it's not the whole verse, it's just the first part of the verse is what I want you to think about this morning. Because if you are part of the all, then you have to grapple with that. Marriage should be honored by all. That means you could be a 10 year old here today and you should honor marriage. You could be 80 years old. I don't think anyone here is 80 years old but marriage should be honored. So this is, this is why I want to speak about this this morning. The world that we live in actually has come along with its own ideas about marriage and people are discussing it as if it's a man-constructed social institution. In other words, people are talking about marriage as if uh, it's for us to define what it means. And the underlying wrong assumption is that family is evolving over time and can be treated as a project that we can work on, improve and tailor to suit our needs. So a lot of Western thought at the moment is a re-examination of what they look at the ancient institutions like marriage and family and then saying, we can modernize this. 
We've just made this up ourselves so we can remake it into something else that suits us better. And that's not really how scripture puts marriage forward. The biblical picture is very different. That's why we need to examine it in more detail. In the world, you get distortions of the idea of family. The reason people get to the point where they're not so happy with things as they are is because things as they are have been broken by sin and they're not working so well. And so what we see is actually these distortions happen to family in society and then people think there's a problem that they can fix when in fact the problem is really the problem of sin and only Jesus can fix that problem. Yeah. So the, the solution is not to tear down marriage and family and build a new model for how people should function in society, but the solution is to go back and look at how God made things. But what have we done with family? We've, we've turned it into some kind of an idol and family can be an idol in some cultures and we must uproot and tear down the idolatrous view of family and build a proper view. And even when family is not an idol, a family can be less than it's supposed to be. In other words, it can be dysfunctional or it can be a place where people are getting hurt. And so we need to set things right, but according to God's word, not according to our best guesses or psychology. In an individualistic society, so secular Western thought, those secular humanistic um, societies, they kind of have this self is God route. They've taken God out the picture in their secularization and they've said that man is kind of the most influential being in his own world and therefore you must make it work for you. And so you become the center and it manifests as rights, the speech about individual rights, my rights to be living my best version of myself. What is that? It's a whole lot of gobbledygook speak. <laughs> I mean, best version of yourself. You are you. Are you. you don't have different versions. It's, this is just so contemporary and messed up. The idea here is that the individual is in the highest place and the result is broken families because the individual breaks away from family to make a life by himself he wants what he is entitled to from his family, but he doesn't want family. And that's how the Western family erodes itself. The individual says, I must have my freedom, and rebels against his own family and leaves as soon as he can. Like the younger brother in Jesus' story of the two brothers, he says, give me my inheritance, I'm out of here to live the life I want to live for myself. You know what results from that? Loneliness. Loneliness is the product of a false liberalism. There's not true freedom in that secularism that says, I have all my individual rights. What you get when you get to fight for your own rights and your own freedom to the max is you get completely alone. That's the end result. You're completely isolated. You end up feeling uh, disconnected and lonely. And sadly, that's where a lot of young secular people are these days. They, they're looking at the, the, the old things they're saying, I don't want that, and I want to live my life my way, and they end up feeling completely alone, disconnected. To fill the void, that kind of person lives in the shallowness of casual hookups and consumerism. So they attach consumerism to relationships, and they say, I'm just going to go from one to the next, and you know what, they end up completely empty still. That rebellion, that kind of rebellion is overt. 
and yet fulfillment still doesn't come, even though they thought this is how I'm going to get the life I want, they end up feeling disappointed. The answer still lies with family and the right relationship to a father. It's really where the answer still lies. It lies in family and it lies in relationship to a father and authority in a family. So that's the problem with the West. What about collectivist societies? In societies that are more um, African or more uh, family-centered, what we find is that the family itself becomes a god. So rather than the individual being the god, the family is now the god. And the individual is sacrificed for the reputation of the family. So if you grow up in, in a Malagasy type of society, very often you will feel under extreme pressure from your family to toe the family line. In other words, to fall in line and to do what the aunts and the uncles and the grandmother and the mom and the dad and all the brothers and sisters and what everybody wants from you is very significant in your life. Unlike Sue and I who grew up as like Westerners, when I finished university I didn't go back home, I went onwards further away from home and I made a life with her and we told our parents when we would visit them. We're like, oh, maybe you'll get Christmas once every other year and don't whine about it. <laughs> So it's a very different world when you're in a collectivist culture and the people try to manipulate you and say the family's having a meeting and it's on Sunday and then you have to decide church or family. And that's manipulative, pressurizing and behind it there's also many good things. You get protection and security and a tomb to be buried in. I don't know, that's kind of big bones. But in this family is God idol, Family event attendance is expected and if you don't show up, your parents are shamed by the community, gossip is rife, scandals are covered up to promote the image of a good family. You have to follow the rules of your place in the family as defined by the community. The result is a lack of trust and responsibility being given because authority resides with the elder generation and the young are not encouraged to grow up and lead. So you end up with a whole lot of passive young people who are maybe 25 to 35 years old, men who are under-motivated and under-ambitious because they've been mommy boys their whole lives. They've been told what to do by their parents. They've been never given true responsibility and authority over their lives. Collectivist cultures do not delegate authority. They control it at the top. Grandma or whoever keeps all the family recipes. <laughs> Honor comes with age and not with good leadership. Think about it. When honor comes with age but not with good leadership, that's why you can have African dictators who are useless at their jobs. I mean, utterly useless in terms of leadership, but they're given honor by their societies because they're the big chief. That's one of the problems with the collectivist culture that puts family at the center as an idol. What happens is, you live to please your elders in front of them, but behind their backs, anything goes. Yeah. And you do whatever you, but if they don't find out, then you get away with it. And so there's not a true respect for law or authority. It's all eye service, as they call it. In front of your elders, you show them all the respect that they're entitled to. Behind their backs, you don't love them at all. The resentment is covert, so it's a hidden resentment. And like the older brother in the parable of the two sons or the story Jesus told about the older and younger brother, 
the older brother, you could be waiting in line, patiently doing everything right, waiting for your inheritance, but in the end, when you have to share the inheritance, there is no joy. There's no joy because you worked, you did everything I was supposed to do, and what do I get? Nothing. And that's the problem. And so you have these families that are in squabbles for decades over a piece of property, fighting with the siblings about what to do with the land, all of the stuff that happens here. Now I want to use this example. I used it last time. I'll use it again when it comes to the topic of abortion. In both family distortions, if an unwanted pregnancy is encountered, abortion is considered as a choice. So it is a pregnancy that for some reason is not planned or wanted. And now you say, what are we going to do to fix this problem? In the one case, it's a brazen public choice with no shame. It's my body. The girl mother has lots of say and not even her parents need to be involved in the discussion. She needs the right to go to some clinic and sort out the problem all because she doesn't want this to damage the life she wants to live. So that's consumerism, secularism, Western thought. It's like my life, my rights. I'm entitled to do what I please, my body, my choice. And so what happens is in that freedom to do what I want, I don't really have to consult with others, but I can get what I want. And so we have people in the West fighting for that right. In the other kind of family, the, 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 where the family is idolized, the choice is to protect the family from embarrassment. So sometimes the pregnancy is hidden and the problem is taken care of internally within the family and the girl mother in this case has very little say in the matter. Sometimes she might even want a baby in this context and the family forces her to go and get to see someone to sort it out. She might end up at some hospital or something. All because of fear of shame, the family looks for an abortion or something even though the mother may want the baby. Now when I look at both those situations, there's one common factor. There's a baby who's being taken advantage of, ripped off, disadvantaged, who's becoming the actual true victim of the story. See, both these situations indicate a family that has ceased to be a safe place for a baby. That's where the real problem should lie. You should say, wait a minute, if a family is not a safe place for a baby, then something is wrong. It's not the baby's fault, something is wrong with the, the other design, the priority of how we're viewing ourselves as individuals or the priority of how we view in our family as an institution. Something is wrong because it shows a clear violation of the Genesis 1 verse 28 command where God said, be fruitful and multiply. So that very concept that you have to deal with it a certain way, you have to say, hold on, that actually indicates there's something very wrong with how we're building our family. So it brings me to the question of why family? And I believe it goes to the very nature of God's being. The very nature of God's being is where family originates. The idea that there is a father at all is because our father in heaven pre-existed all of creation and he was a father then. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this triune God that we're looking to is actually the blueprint for family to some degree. He created it. This is the thing. So it goes to the very nature of God's being. He is triune. In the Godhead we see Father and Son. 
this relationship existed always. There is the root of family. There is a father, there is a son. Now, I'm not going to make that analogy go any further. You know, don't distort scripture and tell me that the Holy Spirit is the mother. That's never portrayed that way in scripture. The Holy Spirit is also a he by pronoun in scripture. When the Bible makes an issue of sex, male and female, it is not arbitrary. In other words, the Bible is not a patriarchal document or like some kind of man-written text. It's God-inspired truth. And so God himself is showing how things are. And if he says male and female, then it is. He's made it that way. Genesis 1 verse 27. This is not arbitrary. It's holy. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Those words are in scripture and they carry weight and power. I thought when I was going to preach this morning, I was praying about it and saying, God, I, I don't feel like I need to have a whole lot of authority about the, the thoughts I carry. I know God's word carries authority. And so by declaring the word of God, we actually speak and uphold truth. And actually all of creation ultimately will bow to this truth. We're made in the image of God created male and female so we're made in the image of god and this is how god made man male and female together we are his representatives we were made in his image in other words a representation of god michael eaton in his series on the doctrine of man emphasizes that when you look inside a temple for evidence of a god you look for a statue or some object which is placed in the temple to represent the god if it's buddha you may find a little Buddha there, but that is not Buddha. It is an image of Buddha. You know the difference, eh? Between the statue and the actual God. Yeah. So, so you look at that little statue and you know you're not really looking at Buddha. You're looking at a representation of him. That statue is maybe only viewed as divine in a pantheistic context. But for most of us rational beings, we know that's just a lump of wood or stone or metal. It can't hear, it can't speak. It gets mocked, actually, in Scripture. Nevertheless, we know that is the representation. If you were to look in the temple, you look for the God, but you're not actually seeing the God. You're seeing an image of the God, a representation of the God. And so that, that thing represents the God in His temple. And God created and then assigned man a very specific task. He set man over creation in his image as his representative with authority to represent him this is where it's written god blessed man and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground so he's created adam he's now blessing him and giving him a mandate which is in a sense a responsibility and every true responsibility is backed up by authority. And so he says to Adam, rule over creation. He has given mankind the privileged responsibility of ruling for him. He set mankind over creation, yet under God's authority. So as part of this given order, God gave family, which we see in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2 verse 20. 
to verse 25. So in Genesis chapter 2 verse 20 it says, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. See what's happening there. God created Adam and God named him Adam. God said you're Adam, which means red earth. It's nice for Malagasy's to think that they're that close to that red earth. Eh? <laughs> so, so right there when God made from the dust, he made Adam man and he called him man. But now what's, who's, who's calling the shots now? Adam is. He's naming the animals. See, the authority has been given to Adam to rule and he's naming and he names all these different animals. Livestock, birds of the air, beasts of the field. But for Adam no suitable help was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now, and the meaning of that is at last, Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Who said that? Okay. Adam. What's he doing? Exercising authority. He's actually naming the woman, woman. That's, that's stuff you have to grapple with because it's in the Bible. I didn't write this. I believe God actually gave this to us. I think we can't be sure about the the actual physics, the science, the medical stuff, just like we don't know the mechanics of the creation of the universe when God said, let there be light, there was light, doesn't tell you how he made. It tells you what he made. And so in the same way, I don't think this is really telling us literally, you know, how human beings, I don't think we could understand this stuff. I think there's a supernatural component to what God was doing when he created Eve out of Adam. Of course. So don't come and tell me, oh, it's fairy tales. It's not. It's just that you're too dumb to understand how God really would have done this. Not one of us on earth is smart enough to understand the mechanics of the universe. So how can we claim to understand the mechanics of how God made Eve out of Adam? But He did. That's what He did. And that's what the scripture is telling us. And what Adam's response was is to say, at last I've found my match. My equal. From my side, not from my feet that I would walk upon her, not from above me that she would control me, from my side that she would be with me together. There's this beautiful imagery of equality. And it goes, it leaps from there to this verse 24 and says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. There's a whole lot of mystery in what that's about, but it's telling you there's something that God made a certain way, and she was made from Him to be rejoined to Him, that the two would become one again, and in that mystery it's powerful enough that He would leave His father and mother and cleave, join to, and be bonded to His woman, His wife. And so that becomes a pattern for mankind that follows thereafter. And so we see the definition of family as not including the authority of grandfathers, but actually the father or the husband is the highest authority in the family. Because this man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his woman, and they shall be, become one flesh. And then it says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. 
which is actually telling you that this is pure. Yeah. It's telling you that this is not just innocent, but that this, this is glorious, yeah. that this is perfection, that, that there's, there's nothing to hide, there's nothing wrong. So the reason for husband and wife remains partly a mystery, but the result of husband and wife is family. What we see, we see that this has something to do with the task of ruling over creation. See, when it says it's not good for a man to be alone, and at last Adam finds his match, it's because she is a suitable helper in not just, it's not the idea of oh, a guy is helpless. No, it's that Adam would be incapable of fulfilling God's mandate to mankind to be fruitful and multiply, to rule. He would be incapable of doing that without her. Adam on his own couldn't reproduce, if you want me to put it bluntly. <laughs> So for this reason, the male and female uniting as one flesh, for this reason a man leaves his father and mother to be united to his one flesh helper, the one who helps him in his God-given privileged responsibility to be fruitful and rule. In fact, he couldn't fulfill it without her, so she's the equal heir to the same glory of fulfilling the mandate of God. The biblical and true family is not a social construct or a changing picture in the history of civilization. It's not open to redefinition. No matter how politically correct you become, you can remove the term broken family from families that have suffered the ravaging effects of sin. You can, you can, you can try and sanitize the pain and try and describe a nicer society with politically correct terms like don't say broken family, don't say single mother or whatever, you know. Don't admit the pain that sin has brought. It's denial. Yeah. There's certain truths. Two men and a child don't constitute a family. Neither do two women and a child. We can call it a new kind of family. But I say you, you're fooling yourself. It's not a biblical family. You see, the family that has no mother is in trouble. The family that has no father is in trouble. And we ought not to deny it and tell them how brave they are. We ought to step in and help the way God does. How does God help? It says He's a father to the fatherless. He places the orphan, the widow, the hurting and the lonely in families. That's what scripture tells us. He doesn't tell them you are a family. So two men and a child or a, a single mother, they don't say, okay, you guys are perfectly fine. No, 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 let's be much more realistic. Because of abandonment, a woman who is leading her household alone, she deserves someone to acknowledge that that task was not meant to fall upon her alone in God's economy. Therefore, how should we respond? I have a friend who's a, a single mom, and she has a son and a daughter, and I would go into that family as an external. Nobody, not directly, no, no rights, no responsibilities. And I would say, how can I help? What I do is sometimes when that young man is like, um, maybe around, I treat him like my own son. 
I say, you're welcome. Let me hear your stories. Tell me your struggles. And I would say, I want to be a father to the fathers. Not that I have a right, not that I'm interfering. It's just that I have to say, this is a vulnerable situation. We should strengthen it. So when I speak about these things that cause extreme pain in people's lives, you don't have to say, oh yeah, be strong. That's the new pattern. Be strong. You can be anything you want to be and just leave them. That's what the world is doing. It's saying, be brave. Chart a new path. The people are hurting. The people are struggling. Society needs fathers. It needs mothers. And where families don't have them, we in the church can actually come in and play something of a supportive role. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that these broken things are perfect. They're not. The idea of redefining what the truth is, is actually a lie. That's what lying is. It's changing the truth and distorting it. So the world tells a man who wrestles with same-sex attraction, embrace it, it's your true identity. And then the process, they cut him off from any opportunity to deal with that another way. Where possibly he could have found a path to full healing and recovery, as I know some men have. But now they must redefine the family so he can feel qualified in a context where he's disqualified. What do I mean? Is he disqualified? If you're a guy here and you're attracted to men, I, I want to tell you something. The world might say that's completely okay. And I'll tell you this, God loves you 100%. There's no disputing the question of God's love. He loves us. No matter how broken we are, and no matter how complicated our lives are, no matter what situations we're in, the love of God is for you. Even if you're attracted to someone of the same sex, God still loves you. But does God say to you, you will find fulfillment down that road in everything I've designed? No, He doesn't. He says, if you follow that path, and you go there and you, and you say, I'm going to, as a guy, cohabit with another guy, I can tell you one thing. You cannot be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Simple. You can't. And this is where the world is in confusion because they don't realize God's ways actually work and the things that are not God's ways don't work. And God's ways lead to blessing and fruitfulness. The things that are not God's ways don't lead to blessing and fruitfulness. That doesn't mean that you're condemned, rejected, hated. No, it just means you have to come into the love of God and then walk in His ways. So this brings us to the God-ordained, God-given, holy institution of marriage. To make a family, it begins with a marriage. To fulfill the Genesis 1 verse 28 mandate, a man will leave his father and mother and join to his wife and the two will become one flesh. She will be his helper and their marriage is in the service of God. Did you realize that? There are so many reasons people get married. You might think when you're a young person you want to get married because you, you're attracted to someone. Well, that's what pulls you towards the marriage, but you've never understood why marriage exists at all. Marriage exists at all because of what we've just been reading, that God created it and then He gave it as an institution to man and said, in this institution you should be fruitful and multiply and exercise His rule over creation. So we get married for selfish reasons, but the reason for marriage is the service of God. It's to serve His agenda. Marriage is given by God and it's for His glory. For this, 
authority is given to. The man does not have authority in order to be the boss. He is the head of a unit established to bring blessings through good stewardship, marriages for God. For this reason, we can be sure God is ready to fully support those who consecrate their marriages to His purposes. It is normal to have children and to rule, to take up leadership and take responsibility for creation. That's what God has purposed for man. You may be asking, what if I never want to get married? That's fine. These are generalizations for humankind that I'm giving you. They don't cater to every single individual in the sense that some are not even called to marriage. Some are called to celibacy. That's fine. Jesus put forward that some should actually not get married. Paul put forward the same idea. But as a pattern for humanity, marriage and family is a normal pattern. So you might be the exception, you might be the person with a special gift of celibacy, that's fine. Your position is not inferior to a married person. And a single person like Misa, he's not inferior to a married couple or some guy who's married. You must understand, God gives, He restores dignity to everyone. He doesn't leave anybody out of His redemptive plan. So whether you were confused about your identity or whether you could never find a spouse, God has dignity for your life. He has a way to give it to you and put you in a place where you can serve Him beautifully. The marriage sets in place a new family. A family is both functional and a covenant celebration. A family is internally a protected place for children to be raised. And the family is externally a blessing as good fruit and good rulership always is. Godly leadership, good rulership, is something glorious and altogether lacking in the world today. We must not have a problem with authority, even though we all do. Authority is not bad. It, it can't be because God is the highest authority and He's altogether good. So when you start looking at God determining things and then me saying things like a husband is head of his family so like recoiling against it because we all intrinsically are afraid of the abuse of authority but the fact that authority gets abused by sinful men does not make authority itself bad god himself is the ultimate authority so we should all as we learn to honor marriage we should learn to honor god and his authority so here then is the need for good marriages. See, a healthy society needs healthy families. And if society depends on family and family depends on marriage, then we are responsible to make sure our marriages work. Yes. Arena, Tina, I look at you, love you guys. You are responsible to make your marriage work. You must, for our sake, for the sake of everyone around, you must figure it out. I'm not saying that just to you. I'm saying to my wife, Sue, you are responsible. I'm responsible to make our marriage work. If we don't, it will do harm to society. If we do it well, it will become a good thing for society. This is important for you to know. You're not living your life as a free agent who can do exactly as you please. You are responsible to make your marriage work. That's why you mustn't enter into it lightly. What do I mean by work? I mean serve its purpose. When you get married, you make a vow in public because you are accountable to the public, the community. Marriage thus itself needs to be protected. 
So the conclusion I'm coming to now is that this marriage is such an important thing because it sits at the, at the nexus, at the meeting point of, of creating family, which is the sphere in which children are raised and society becomes healthy and being fruitful and multiplying and ruling. All of this depends on this institution. Whether you ever become married or not, you should honor right. marriage. Yes. That's why Hebrews 13 verse 4, the text I started with, said, Let marriage be honored by all. So marriage thus needs to be protected and correctly ordered. In other words, it needs to be built correctly according to God's word. What should we protect marriage from? Everything. Marriage should be protected from ministry. Marriage for the glory of God. Not for the sake of ministry. Marriage could facilitate ministry, it's certainly a disqualifier. If you don't have a, a stable marriage, 1 Timothy 3 says you don't qualify to be an elder. If it gets messed up, you're in trouble. So it's a disqualifier. So basically that means marriage is more important than ministry. Ministry must not be the only thing in your life. So some people, they sacrifice their marriages for the sake of, oh, I'm doing the will of God. You're lying to yourself. God wants you to first have a good marriage, and out of the good marriage, ministry will flow. Yes. And if your marriage is messed up, you're not qualified to be a spiritual minister. And there's, there's big denominations and church movements where they get that wrong. And they plow on as if nothing's wrong. Their marriage is falling apart, they've had an affair, they haven't attended to their home, and the Bible says you're not qualified to lead God's people, and then they carry on taking the stage and being the big shot minister. Yeah. They've made ministry their idol, and they are not fooling God. So what do you need to protect your marriage from? Ministry, if ministry tries to take over. Kids. In the same way, marriage is more important than kids, children. It should precede them. Yes. Come on. Marriage should come before children. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby, you know, in a baby carriage, whatever. It's, there's, a, there's a way things are supposed to work, okay? So if marriage comes before kids, guess what? It should not only precede them, it should outlive them in the right sense that they should leave and have their own marriages. In other words, in your life, mom or dad, kids are not the most important thing. Your spouse is. Your spouse is the most important. The kids come second. Kids must not be the only thing or the idol in your life. The best gift you can give your children is a healthy marriage. So wife, put your husband first, not the kids. It's a bit late to say that, hey. <laughs> I mean, she's always put me first, not the kids. They've had quite a tough upbringing. It's like sometimes these days we just text them. We won't be at home tonight. We're going on a date. Sort yourselves out for supper. It's like we're not even going to help you sort yourself out anymore. You're old enough to take care of yourselves. We're taking care of our marriage. Amen. See, everyone wants a piece of you. But beware of the difference between what's urgent and what's important. The kids crying may sound urgent, but what's important is connecting with your spouse. 
Don't sacrifice what's important in favor of what sounds urgent, the bleating, the, the crying. We end up in trouble. Just because a gracious husband won't compete. I've got this in my notes, I have to say. It's like, it's all younger, you know, nursing moms. Just because a gracious husband won't compete for your breasts doesn't mean you can forget about sex. It's a fact. Put your husband first, even though that baby's crying. Tiredness competes against our marriage. So keep it fresh. Figure out how to be refreshed. Take time out when you need to. Go away for a weekend as a couple and get someone else to look after your children. What else do you have to guard your marriage against? You've got to guard it against ministry, against kids, against tiredness, against unforgiveness and bitterness. Is there gentleness, tenderness, or are there areas of your heart that are getting closed off? Over years and years and years of getting beaten up, do you get bitter and do you allow a root, a bitter root, to take a hold? Are you slowly letting your heart harden? Are you closing off to your spouse? Or are you forgiving? Watch out for unforgiveness and bitterness. Watch out for areas of your heart becoming hard. You have to guard your marriage. Amen. Guard your marriage against others, outsiders, others. Never speak in a way that dishonors your spouse. Especially not to your mother or your best friend. Do you get it? Who would you go to to co complain about your spouse disappointing you? God. Not someone else. Don't go and, ah, oh, you know, I'm so irritated with my husband, blah, blah, blah. And you talk to your best friend like that. Don't dishonor your husband to your mother or to your friend. And when it comes to what you're supposed to find in your marriage. Guard it against the outside. Guard your marriage against the other offers. Never look outside of your marriage for what you're supposed to find in it. That's right. that simple. If it's not in it, you've got to figure out how to get it in it. In other words, if, if I like to see a woman's body, God's given me one woman whose body I should be allowed to see, right? So don't look for it somewhere else. If, that's, if I'm feeling like that need isn't being satisfied, then rather than go outside to look at other naked bodies on the internet or wherever, I say, no, God, help me. I don't want to do that. I need to see this woman, so I must persuade her. How will I persuade her? I have to tell her how beautiful she is again and again. Until she trusts me enough to say, enjoy my beauty. And she gives it to me. If I can't find it in my marriage, I'm not allowed to find it outside of my marriage. I have to figure out how to build it in my marriage. Do you get that? So figure out how to build it. And women who are married here, your husband may need some things that you don't. Because he's not you. So if he says, I really want to see you. And you think, oh, but I'm so ugly. <laughs> Get over yourself. He wants to enjoy seeing you. Let him see you because he thinks you're amazing. And even if you don't think you're amazing, don't let your lack of reality take away from his potential to enjoy you. 
take what you have and live with it. What you don't have, you can't have unless you get it inside your marriage. Guard your marriage against outside. Keep the marriage pure. Total faithfulness, a demonstration of grace, loving the undeserving and showing the love of God, keeping faithful to the choice you made, forsaking all others until you see the glory of what God is doing. Marriage should be honored by all. This is the point of the verse I want to drive home. I've preached long. I'm going to stop now. Marriage should be honored by all. It's something high and holy. So no matter what your past is, no matter the failures or the disappointments, no matter the lies of the world, we must have a high view of marriage. It's greater than the individuals who come to it. We come into marriage because we want contact or sex or security or end of loneliness or someone to talk to. We come into it thinking we're going to get something for ourselves. God made marriage to serve His purposes. We have to mature in our view of marriage and say, I'm actually going to make this work not for me, but for His glory. You see, it is greater than the individuals that come to it. It is given to mankind by God. It's the foundation of the family and it is a reflection of God Himself in the sense that He made us in His image, male and female, and the two were going to become one and be fruitful and multiply and honor the mandate of God to mankind. Marriage is for that. It's for God's glorious commission to humanity. So let's do what it takes to prioritize refreshing and repairing our marriages and let us speak of marriage with the honor that it deserves. Not the way the world talks about it, but the way that God has made it, it's a holy, a holy thing. Let's pray, and then while I pray, the band can come up and we'll worship God. Heavenly Father, I ask you to move upon our hearts, Lord, to understand holy things like marriage, your glory, things that are mysterious and things that are weighty, God help us to honor them, help us to carry them with the dignity and the degree of reverence that they deserve. God, it would take faith in this generation to get married. I pray for the younger unmarried people here, that they would see something glorious and say, God, I want to be part of that that you have made. I want in on what you have created for your glory. God, give young people here the courage to be married one day and to honor you through those marriages in Jesus' name. Amen.